Hey everyone, Morgan here, and thank you so much for joining me on the Rogue Preparedness Podcast. Uh, so today we have a very special guest, um, and we're going to get to him in just a minute, but I wanted to do a quick couple admin things. First of all, if you've been listening to this podcast uh, for a while, or this is your first time, or whatever, I'd really appreciate any sort of feedback. So you can always contact me on social media, just search Rogue Preparedness on basically everywhere. Um, and you can also, oh yeah. Please leave a review. I don't, you know, I'm not pressuring you to leave a positive review, but, um, you know, any review, whether it's one star to five or whatever, just uh, leave a review and uh, let me know how I'm doing. And in saying all of that, if you really do uh, like my podcast, I am on Patreon and YouTube and my website and sign up for my newsletter and get more deeper into the rogue preparedness world. (laughs) Okay, so let's uh, introduce our guest here. We have Nick with the Hostile Hair. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on. I'm really excited about today's topic. We're going to be talking about um, self-sufficiency, but like um, self-sufficiency of like farming um, and like kind of food, but other aspects and maybe alternative fuels and and some other fun stuff. So we got a lot to talk about. (laughs) Um, I'm excited to cover these topics. This should be a good show. Yeah. Um, first of all, I want to ask you uh, a very standard question. How did you get involved in preparedness? Well, a um, couple of, you know, I, I, I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. And uh, my grandma, you know, when we were growing up, it was just part of life. She'd grow a bunch of vegetables and, and can them and store them in the basement. And, I didn't mm-hmm. think of it as preparedness. I just thought of it as, hey, we made food, we kept food. You know, <laughs> um, it was uh, just kind of life. You know, I'm not saying I was a little home on the prairie or anything like that, but uh, <laughs> it was, you know, what what grandma did. It just it was the norm. Um, but as an adult, you know, I actually started a job in the copier repair world and. I was good at what I did, but I couldn't get across the point of what I was doing to fix the machine. And my boss was getting super frustrated. He actually walked me out into the parking lot one day and he's like, that guy that I just hired in there, he's your replacement. So uh, I had a mortgage, uh, you know, I had debt up to my ears and now I was losing my job and just, like, oh my gosh, what the hell am I going to do? So I had a, an hour drive home from then, and and, uh, and I'm like, how am I going to tell? Like, I was, I was married at the time. I'm like, I got to figure out, you know, how to turn this into something positive. By the time I got home, I had a plan to uh, basically make my house pay for itself, uh, utilize every bit of my property and my know-how, and get to where I don't need a day job because it's, it's a source of income, yes, but it's still trading time for money, and you know you're at the mercy of of what an employer thinks your time is worth, not necessarily what your time is worth to you. Um, so on that drive home, I kind of conjured the plan that I was going to go a lot harder with the uh, with the side business, uh, and I'll tell you about the start of that side business here in a second. But uh, um, I. I was really, you know, thrown out of the, hey, a job is security type thing. Um, so that was that was my first real kick in the pants by the boot of reality uh, that, uh, you know, you really don't have control over what's happening in the world. That's true. And so, actually, job loss is on actually the top of the list of people's concerns, but people don't really know how to prepare for it and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, a job loss is just one of those emergencies that you, you're like, no, I have this job. I'm going to have this job forever. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Right. Uh, but no, uh, unless you're working for yourself, you're, you're at the mercy of someone else. Yeah, exactly. So it turns out that the guy that he hired to replace me was actually an idiot. So I kept the job. I was able to, to stay there. I'm still 
actually I do that as as I'm kind of part time now doing it, but um, I, I've switched companies because that employer was a jerk. But anyway, um, I'm still doing that for a day job 11 years later. But I'll tell you this much: knowing that you don't have to go to work knowing that you can handle this world without trading time for money and going because it's your choice, you're going to enjoy what you do a lot more. No matter what you're doing, you're going to enjoy it more when there's not the proverbial gun to your head uh, making you do it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, 100%. And I and I totally get that the fact that some people just have to work. They got to work. They got to work. They got to make some money, you know. And I get that. I've been there a lot, you know, in my 20s. It's like basically all I did. I was just, you know, going from job to job to just to, you know, work to, to survive and live and whatever. But, um, you know, it took me a long time to find out, you know, what I'm really good at and stuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But um, I I am the, the same mindset of you as, you know, more self-sufficiency, the better in every aspect of the exactly. word. Well, if you look at, you look at your, at your biggest expenses in life, uh, it's going to be food, fuel, medicine. You know, those are, those are the big ones, you know, house over your head, uh, is the biggest expenses is what you're paying every month to either rent or you know, own property. Right. So if you can figure out a way to make that biggest expense at least pay for itself, um, it's it's worth paying into. So prior to this really beautiful conversation with my boss, um, I I'm an alternative fuels junkie, by the way, which is which is the grown up version of I used to light stuff on fire as a kid, really enjoyed it. So I needed a socially acceptable way to continue doing that later in life. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I, I, I found this old 1880s technology that for a while I thought I invented it until somebody told me, no, it existed before you, uh, called gasification. Uh, where you can take a biomass and basically light it on fire, starve the fire of oxygen, and get a very fuel-rich smoke coming out of the fire. Uh, and that all of the hydrocarbons and stuff that didn't burn because it wasn't enough oxygen can be used in an internal combustion engine or in solid-state um, gaseous electrolysis. You can, you can do these things. Uh, but anyway, I was playing around with these... these uh, technologies from the 1880s and uh, I needed something that could organize biomass but since my goal was to produce electricity I didn't want to buy an electric pelletizer to create pellets from biomass so I looked at nature see what out there is uh, making pellets well I lived in uh, a little HOA controlled community that mm -hmm. wouldn't let me have boats, deer, and things of the sort. Uh, so I got rabbits. I got five of them. And uh, these five rabbits were supposed to be all female, but uh, one of them was not. And so in a very short time, I went from five rabbits to 50. Oh, jeez. And so, yeah, it wasn't immaculate conception. I did find some dangly parts on one of them. And anyway, we... Uh, we got looking through, and, and it turns out there was demand for these rabbits. So I started selling bunnies. And within eight months, I had 50 breeding females producing 250 babies a month. Wow. And, oh, yeah, it happened quick. And I, I couldn't get enough. Like, there was, there was still more... Um, there was still more market out there. So I built a bigger setup and jumped from... 250 on hand to 1600 in and, your uh, HOA <coughs> yes okay so where were you keeping them in the backyard that's what's great though is nobody can see them nobody can smell them nobody can hear them uh -huh. that's what's great about a prey animal like that is they don't want to be seen heard or smelled so they're very clean and they don't take up much space um but uh, then I, I built a I built a better facility on my former in-laws' property, uh, which wasn't a great business decision since it was on somebody else's property that was mm. contingent marriage that didn't work out. Mm. So 
<laughs> without bringing a ton of drama up, uh, I now own three and a half acres just outside of the Phoenix Valley, and uh, I started a farm here. We, we bought it in, in June, and uh, we're getting things together, slow going, but, uh, you know, but the back to the fact of it is I didn't need three and a half acres to feed myself. Every month I was producing 1,250 pounds of rabbit meat out of my little backyard. So you can't eat that much. That right. that, that that is a massive surplus. Um, you know, something that I tell people is, you know, you go to your day job and you're trading your non-renewable resource time for a fiat currency that's backed by nothing but empty promises. Right. Uh, so you go and you trade your time for money, you take that money, you put it in the bank, and as it sits in the bank, it gets worth less and less and less as it sits there over time um, because they just keep printing more of it. Right. But uh, anyway, that's, that's my rant. Uh, food, you'll notice, continues to increase in price because it still takes the same amount of resources to create food. Uh, so instead of paying somebody else with your money to make food at an increasing rate, you can make your own food and just put your own, instead of trading your time for money and then trading it back to somebody else at a lower rate, you can actually take that same amount of time, put it towards making food, and use that to trade for somebody else's uh, resources, if you will. Um, right. Now... I'm not... Go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to say, I mean, you're... So this is very much like somebody in just like a little backyard thing um, that they can do. But I mean, like how much, like I have so many questions about this, but really kind of what it comes down to is how much time, maintenance and money um, are you investing in those rabbits? Like, are you having to really, you know, put the two rabbits in a cage and, you know, force them to, you know, multiply or are you, you know, is it like, do they eat a ton of food or, you know, like what? At my, at the height of the amount of rabbits that I had, I had 1600 of them and it was about 20 minutes to half an hour a night. I would go and I would feed them, make sure their waterers were working and I would clean out cages. And then on Saturdays, whichever does were ready to be bred again, Saturday was breeding day, and I'd be over there for maybe four hours, making sure that all of the does, the female rabbits that were ready, were bred. Okay, so and, you uh, you were kind of secluding them, or like how were you doing it? Uh, you, yeah, you, you don't want to just put a bunch of rabbits in the same pen together. That's there's there's ways of doing that. It's called colony raising. Um, I actually had them in individual compartments inside of an air-conditioned warehouse. Okay. Uh, so it, that's like where where I was, there wasn't a way to have them outside. Cause in Phoenix, it gets to 120 degrees, and rabbits yeah. go into shock at 90 degrees. So you need to... Um, in a, let's say if you're in a grid-down situation where you absolutely can't get them cool with electricity or whatever, you can dig a hole in the ground. In Arizona specifically, at 10 feet, it's 55 degrees year-round. Mm. So you dig down and, and cover it up and use a little bit of thermo... Uh, oh, what do they call that? Thermo, geothermal um, engineering you can kind of keep their temperature below 80 and uh, and they'll breed all summer long, no problem. Wow, interesting. Um, that's good to know. <laughs> um, okay, so so you do want to kind of seclude them. So like I, I, I've seen 
Um, I had a YouTube friend, um, he did do this. I'm not sure if he's still doing, he's not posting videos anymore, but, um, I'm sure he is, but he had like a bunch of just cages and then he had the rat, like a couple, maybe like a couple rabbits in various cages, you know, like maybe two or three rabbits to a cage. Is that, is that kind of like you were saying, there's the colony and then there's probably a way like that where, you know, you're kind of secluding them within the cages, right? Yeah, so the um, the does become very territorial, and like you can't even put a buck into a doe cage; she will tear him apart. Uh, you have to take her out of her cage and put her into his cage in order to breed them. Um, and if, if you leave if you leave them together for too long in a cage, you end up with. Uh, I actually have had a doe kill a buck because he wouldn't leave her alone. Uh, no means no, man. Uh, but uh, he died happy. Big smile on his face. Oh um, no! But, uh, yeah, I, I think she she kicked and got him right in the throat. Uh. Anyway, you know, rabbits are not these fluffy, cute little animals that we think they are. <laughs> this is look at the bones. No, money bites on there. Um, so you you want to keep them separate. Uh, after they hit three months old, they're, they've got all the parts to be sexually mature so they can start breeding. I usually wait a little bit longer before I breed them just because I want them to have a full frame. Uh, they don't have that at three months. So I usually wait till six months before they start breeding. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so then what would you say would be like a total uh, like cost of kind of getting started. Like I actually see on your website here that you actually make your own cages. Is that right? I do. I do. So when I started, I had the five and then had 50 and that happened like almost overnight. <laughs> so I went on Craigslist and started buying every hillbilly redneck rigged cage that I could find that were half fallen apart to where the, my backyard looked like the Clampets got into raising rabbits. It was redneck hell. You know, and it, it was just, you know, I, I even claimed to be kind of a redneck, and I'd look back there and be like, nope, this, is, this isn't good. So, so I, started, uh, I started making my own cages, and I was selling rabbits. People come over, and they admired my cages, so I'd, I'd build them a cage and give them a rabbit. You know, if they if they bought a cage, I'd give them a rabbit. And uh, so I started making more and more cages and turned that into a business too. Um, it's you know, it's it's fun to do. It's it's not incredibly physically taxing to build cages um, as long as you've got all the tools. Now I've gone I've gone to pneumatic and electric tools because I'm fat and lazy. So you know, I don't want to be cramping up my wrists all the time. <laughs> the cutting material. <clears throat> so, yeah, I started uh, I started building cages like that. Uh, found that with the design that I use, every thirty six square feet of cages, which is a six by six area, you can produce about six thousand pounds of live rabbit annually. Wow. Um, yeah, you you can really uh, you can really pump out the bunny. That's a lot of rabbits. So you sell them, and then I'm sure, you know, you, like, can it, do you can the meat and, like, preserve oh, yeah. it? Yeah. Yep. I have, a, I have a smoker that can handle about 250 to 300 pounds at a time. Great. And I can sure. make rabbit jerky for days. Oh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, you can it, you freeze it, you smoke it. Um, I've got 73 recipes on how to eat rabbit on my website. I, I, um, I was just looking at that. That's awesome. Everyone should go download that at thehostilehair.com. That looks amazing. So many recipes. <laughs> it's funny. I've only used like six of those. But um, like people will send them in. I'm like, oh, i got to try that. Here, I'll put it on my site and I'll get to it. Three years later, I'm like, oh, I still don't have <laughs> Because they get stuck on like rabbit enchiladas and right. smoked rabbit, barbecued rabbit. Those are my favorite, and they're the easiest. So. <laughs> right. 
I like this one that's fried rabbit with grapefruit juice. Not with any other juice with grapefruit juice. I'm sure that's like as a seat, as a marinade or something, but it's just funny to me the way that's <laughs> fried rabbit with grapefruit juice. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> okay, anyway. Yeah, it, that, one, that one was suggested to me, oh gosh, I think it was a Greek guy told me that one. Nice. And uh, he, he gave me a couple of them that were like, okay, I'm probably never going to do that, but <laughs> I'll put it on there see if somebody else likes it. Yeah, hey, I don't know. Buttermilk fried rabbit, now that sounds delicious. Oh, it is. That one's good. I've had that. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, what's great, though, is it's it's food. You, you, you know exactly what it ate and how it was treated. You've got complete control over what you're eating. So, as far as what we're eating, um, how would you feed rabbits in a sort of off-grid situation? Like, you know, especially, I mean, would you have to have, like, a very specific garden for stuff to feed them or making your own food? Like, how would that even go? All right. So, I'll ask you a question. What is the most common weed that people complain about in their luscious yards? Dandelion. Dandelions. That's number one. That's what people hate. They, they hate dandelions. They hate Johnson grass. And oh, what's the other one? Oh, clover. They don't like clover in their yard. You know, they, they want dry stuff. So literally, all the stuff that we can't stand in our pedigreed lawns are exactly what the rabbits want. Awesome. So I actually have a, a few, uh, actually a few thousand uh, dandelion seeds and. You know, I throw them in the neighbor's yards that I don't like, but no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I have uh, I have some, some food plots that I'm putting out. I'm going to be putting together kind of an orchard grass mixture so that uh, I could forage for the bunnies. Wonderful. Could you, now let me just uh, ask, could, could you throw, just throw them out into the field and be like, have fun, and then wrangle them all up later? That's probably not recommended. That would be... <laughs> really exciting uh to try and do that and like and i've i've considered it so like beagles and uh even healers they like healers like to herd yeah beagles like to chase rabbits and if i could train a few dogs to do that and just get out there on a very small pony's horse like horseback (laughs) and play rabbit is it rabbit boy not a cowboy but rabbit (laughs) rabbit I could be a rabbit wrangler out there with a really small lasso and, uh, you know, have my dog moving the, the rabbits from field to field. That would, that sounds really exciting, but Amazing. Uh, I don't, I don't think that it's a really good idea. Um, but I, I, I've, I've considered having like food plots that are fenced off that the rabbits could go out into that are kind of smaller. Um, go. but the the real the real plan is uh, it's it's fun to joke about all that but the real plan <laughs> yeah. is to build a, a large ten by twenty structure that will move over top of a, a plot of land so I'll have a big twenty foot wide strip that goes uh, five hundred fifty feet which is the length of my property and I can just move that whole house once a day and they just mow down the grass. In their there area. You go. So yeah, it that's... would be a habit tractor. That's pretty smart. Someone actually suggested that I do that with my chickens when I had chickens. And I was like, man, that's so much work. Because we had like a really big chicken coop. And I was like, ugh, I had to move this thing like all the time. Like it wasn't, I did not have the right chicken coop for that. But, I, you know, if you made something you know that was easily movable or whatever then yeah that's that's a fantastic idea you know especially with rabbits you know they have you know living little little living spaces and i'm sure it'd be easy just to kind of move them from plot to plot but uh i mean yeah and with weeds you don't got to do anything they just breed on their own <laughs> yeah yep, that's exactly it these i mean dandelions we as humans are actually supposed to be eating it it's good stuff yeah, um, I, I eat it. But, I love dandelions. I tell people all the time, stop getting rid of your dandelions. This, in fact, my sweet old uh, neighbor lady, she was, um, she came from like some gardening meeting or something. She came back and she was like, 
look at these weeds right here. And she pointed to dandelion. She's like, you can eat those. You can have all of them if you want. And I was like, oh, you're so sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> she was all, she was all excited about it. <laughs> it was great. So it is great. So the other option um, is barley. If you take a, a pound of barley seeds or barley fruit and you put it in a tray and you water it for seven days, it becomes seven pounds of barley grass. And if you add a fertilizer of any kind to the water, you can actually get more mass out of it. Um, but in seven in a seven-day cycle, you can take seeds to feed and uh, it lowers your cost dramatically because you're not buying commercial pellets anymore. So you have the option of foraging for your bunnies. But if you're in a situation like me where, yes, you have well water, but no, you don't have uh, tillable soil, uh, not yet. i got to do some soil fixing. But mm -hmm. um, at the moment, my, my property kind of looks like the scene from Land Before Time when Littlefoot's, you know, tromping around looking for his tree stars or whatever. <laughs> That, that's where I live. Uh, but it, anyway, the, the idea is you, you get this automatic watering system going to where you can grow as much fodder for your animals as you as you need. And, you know, barley, if you store it right, I mean, they, they found different breeds of barley that the Egyptians stored in their, in their grain mills 3,000 years ago, and it's still viable. Nice. So... Um, and then if you're in a, in a you know, post-apocalyptic state and, and you've got a bunch of seeds, now you can sow them. And I think barley is a, a three-month turnaround from planting to harvest before you can you can get more seeds out of it. Yeah, that's um, great. Just do it on a small scale. That's, I mean, that takes a little bit more land um, to, to reproduce barley seeds, uh, but it's possible. So the barley seeds, they give you the alternative to have to forage for your animals, and you can actually grow food for your food. Um, yeah, if you if you look up, I believe I've got some posts on um, fodder production. I used to sell a kit for it, but uh, uh, ended up just selling the selling the plans for it. You can go to Home Depot and get everything you need uh, to build them. But, uh, yeah, pretty handy stuff. So um, outside of rabbits, what other types, are there any other um, sustainable, self-sustaining, I guess, foods, sources, like kind of like that outside of gardening? Um, and there, that's not even self-sustaining sometimes, some of them. Anyway, anyway, uh, <laughs> outside of a food source that you recommend. Yes, so rabbits are great, but they don't lay eggs. And uh, I like eggs, but I don't like chickens. Uh, chickens are grilled. I know, I know, everybody that has chickens and they love their chickens, but here's the deal. When I did live in my HOA, it was controlled by Hitler's little brother and the Third Reich. Uh, I thought it would be cool to get some chickens. And the people that we bought them from said, oh yeah, their wings are clipped, you're fine. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, brought them home at night. They're super docile at night. And everything is good. The next morning, the sun comes up. There wasn't a rooster among them, but all these freaking chickens went everywhere. I mean, I got to meet <laughs> six neighbors on all sides of me, and it was it was a mess. It was an absolute mess trying to catch these chickens up. And uh, so we had these things. For like a day and a half, we had chickens. And it was, it was bad. And See, in that amount of time, they managed to crap all over everything <laughs> in my backyard. It, it looked like your car does when you park under that one tree, you know, but everywhere. I mean, uh, I'm not going to lie. Yes, they poop everywhere. Unless, you know, if they're free range, they're going to poop everywhere. I mean, yeah, that's that's how our backyard looked. But I was okay with it because I really like the chickens. But I think the trick with chickens, I'll tell you. You have to get them from chicks 
if you get them as they're ready to like ready to lay eggs, they're awful. They're the worst chickens. You have to get them from chicks. You raise the chicks. Yeah, it takes like six months, sometimes nine months or more, depending on the breed. But um, you get the chicks, and then you just raise them up, and uh, they're amazing. They're they're really bonded to you they love you they'll come to you when you call them seriously and you know like they they're great and and the type of breed really matters big time so that's my spiel about chickens (laughs) that's my standing up for chickens (laughs) no you're you're absolutely right um i was not in a position to do that after all of my neighbors knew that I was trying to do something. I had to go a little more <laughs> incognito. Right. Uh, so I got some quail. And uh, these quail, yes, the rooster is kind of loud, not near as loud as, you know, the whole neighbor, <laughs> yep, that's a chicken. But uh, these Quarternix quail, they make almost a songbird little cheap that they do. And uh, these these quail, they're laying. So a chicken averages 260 eggs a year, right? So mm-hmm. six six to nine months, then they start laying, and then it's 260 eggs a year until they hit their molt. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Quail, they start laying at like six weeks, and they're doing 300 eggs a year per bird. So wow, in a recipe. <laughs> In a recipe, it takes five quail eggs to replace a chicken egg, unless you've got jumbo quail, and it takes like three. But uh, it only takes four quails to replace a chicken in egg-laying power. Does that make sense? Yeah, but they're so cute. The eggs are just itty-bitty. They're so adorable. <laughs> and delicious. <laughs> yes, I have heard yeah. that. I, I actually have a friend that raises quails, and they're so the quails are great. They're pretty quiet, like you were saying, you know. And then um, they they lay these eggs every day. So yeah, and yeah. I will say that the chickens are pretty finicky sometimes, and but I still like chickens. <laughs> but oh, yeah. I I. I I love the concept of quails. I think that's fantastic. And then you can have, so so. A, what is a lifespan of a quail? Then it, at the point when they're done laying eggs, would you you would you use them for meat? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, going off of the same the same cage system. So like most of most of my, um, I don't want to say research. Yeah, I guess it'd be research. But the problems that I try and solve are living in a metropolitan area and not being able to farm. Right. Right. So uh, let's say this single mom with two kids want to teach her, her kids where food comes from. She can do that on her patio with a two foot by three foot cage that can produce the same amount of, of eggs that one chicken does per level uh, very easily. And it only takes a small amount of space. So in that two foot by three foot area with four layers, four levels, sorry, uh, it's like 960 pounds of quail if you were to just incubate them on average. Because uh, you can harvest them about six weeks as well. Oh, wow. So that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of, 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 uh, of meat out of itty-bitty little quail. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's just figuring the uh, the breast the breast meat weight of four ounces a piece. Oh. So. Yeah, yeah, and that's just it's kind of wasteful to just pluck the breasts out. Like you can, if you pluck them, you can get the legs as well, and and you know have something for stew, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, yeah, their, their egg-laying power is amazing. Their taste is amazing. Um, and it's marketable, too. Like, people people love something different that still is, you know, a bird. Um, right. You know, if you try to sell rabbit meat, you'll find that America is stuck in the uh, pig, chicken, and beef paradigm. And that's all that we eat. Um, yep. 
<laughs> well, I mean, we, there's, there's still people that are branching out. There's a place in Scottsdale that's, you know, he's, he's serving rabbit meat at his restaurant, and people are loving it. Wonderful. And the French, the French, they pay 40 bucks a plate for the rabbit liver, for rabbit pate. <laughs> I give that's... that to the damn dogs. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't eat liver because there's better parts of the rabbit. Wow. Oh. Is there a way you could send it off to France over there? Here you go, here's some livers. <laughs> Pay me. <laughs> this, this is where the, uh, the, the trouble is. Uh, in order to ship, in order to process for human consumption and send outside of the state, you need a USDA slaughter facility. Oh. Uh, the last time that I checked, just to have the inspector on site is going to cost you $90,000 a year to have him tell you you're doing it wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So your your volume has to be high enough to absorb that cost. Um, and that ninety k a year, you figure you can just about employ two butchers for that same cost. Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. This this is a conspiracy that goes back to the seventies. Um, a certain a certain food company did not want to compete with rabbits, so they they uh, lobbied the federal government pretty hard to get it to be a voluntary inspection on rabbits. Uh, they called it a game inspection, and since it's it's game, then uh, it it's not like uh, chicken where. If you have a USDA plant, you don't pay the inspector. The inspection is, it's not free. You still have to pay licensing, but it's not near as expensive. So that added cost pretty much takes care of any of the the, uh, rabbit facilities. I think there's like two in the U.S. that actually butchered for state-to-state consumption. Wow. Um, Some states are, they do allow rabbits to be butchered, but... Uh, not Arizona, unfortunately. Uh, like I believe Florida, you can do twenty thousand head without even having a state inspection. Wow. But, yeah, but if you do it for your own consumption, nobody cares. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but that's great. That's fine. Um, for for quail, what what do you feed quail? So this is. Uh, if you just go to the store and get quail feed, you want something that's the highest protein they have. Usually, a game bird or a chicken, or a excuse me, game bird or a turkey feed, like twenty-seven percent protein or higher, is, is what they really like. Uh, they'll do okay on twenty to twenty-four percent protein. Some people are feeding lower than that. I don't recommend it because their egg production drops off. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, you can get them mealworms and stuff. But have you ever heard of black soldier fly larva? No. So hopefully you're not squeamish. We're going to talk about bugs. No, I um, love bugs. Everyone else hates it. I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bugs are great. So if you – so these black soldier fly larvae, they as, – as an adult – sorry, the fly itself, it looks like a hornet. But it doesn't sting. It doesn't even have a mouth. It's just a very reclusive fly that it, it doesn't eat as an adult. Its sole purpose is to breed and to make babies. You know, you just, the females will lay 900 eggs and then go off and die somewhere. Jeez. Uh, I know, morbid existence, right? <laughs> um, but what they do is they, they lay their eggs above a food source. So... You get this. You get a special composter for black soldier fly larva, uh, like a plastic tub that's that's angled on the sides, and so the the little egg hatches, becomes a little grub, falls into the food, and eats like a ravenous whatever. It just goes plowing through the freshest food it can find. It doesn't want all the putrid stuff. It wants to eat fresh stuff. So uh, it's not like a common house fly that for one, as an adult, will spread disease because it lands on bacteria-ridden mm-hmm. food. The next one goes to the next one and lands on your face and it's really gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, and then the housefly larvae, maggots, 
are actually eating the the most rotten, like the the bacteria and the rot from decomposing matter. But the black soldier fly larva, they want the they want the freshest stuff. There's actually videos on YouTube of uh, somebody throwing in a fresh trout and a cooked trout into the composter, and these things go through it in 24 hours. It's gone. Wow. Uh, like there's a little bit of skin left and maybe the biggest bones, but it just disappears. Um, so anyway, these these live for about two weeks. Towards the end of the the larva state, they start turning brown and then they turn black. And when that happens, they try to go to ground. They try to get out of the food because if they hold still and make their cocoon, their brothers and sisters will just eat them too, uh, which is nice because that means they'll eat the, the fly cocoons from the house fly. And you know, even their pheromones ward off house flies because of this. So anyway, these, uh, these larvae, they try to get into the dirt, but since they're in a plastic composter, they go down, they hit the plastic, and they do this little lemming march of death out of the composter and into a collector. So now you've got these black soldier fly larvae that are in a collection bin, and you just sprinkle them into your quail cage feeder, and the quail destroy them and get really fat and happy off the 40% protein and like 20% fat and like all the good stuff that is what these, these flies are made of. So not only are you composting and getting super rich, awesome worm castings from the composter, but you are feeding your food, food scraps indirectly. Um, that's amazing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's awesome. Right? No, oh, they're they're amazing. I used to I used to sell a composter, but um, kind of went back to focusing on rabbit stuff. Um, I've been considering building my own special one, but uh, I'm not there yet. But so when I when I hit my max out at this property, I should have around twenty thousand head of rabbits, and uh, twenty thousand divided by four is five thousand or no. Yeah, five thousand about five thousand pounds of manure a day is what they'll produce. Wow. So I wow. I need to have a composter that'll handle that. And uh black soldier fly larva is the way I'm gonna go. That's fantastic. Love it. Um what what do you do with the fur or or feathers? The fur the rabbits and the feathers of the quail. Do you do anything? So the fur, in Arizona, it's kind of rough to make like a pretty fur coat out of anything because in order to get the nice undercoat that you get from a fur-carrying animal, you need to be under 60 degrees for like three months. Well, mm -hmm. I'm butchering these rabbits when they hit five pounds, and that's only 10, 10 weeks. So uh, in 10 weeks, they're not big enough to butcher for fur, but they're big enough for the, the food. You know, just their, their meat just made it. Um, you can use the, the, the hides as a leather, and if you shave off the shave off the fur itself, they actually use it in felt. Uh, like certain cowboy hats will be made from rabbit, beaver, and one other fur. I forget what the other fur is, but they're using just the hair, and then they oh. they use a they use resin, and yeah, that's how cowboy hats are made. Um, but they'll use rabbit fur in there. So, cool. In case you want to make cowboy hats, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that could be a business. <laughs> cowboy hats are yeah. cowboy hats are hot. <laughs> Hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as feathers go, uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's I, really I, not. I, what I think of feathers is like crafty stuff, really. I mean, I you could do like little accessories and things with feathers. That's mostly what I think you know, of using feathers for. Oh yeah, and if you if you get a bunch of fish hooks, you could totally make some awesome flies. There you go. Uh, but uh, and like if you're if you're really thinking long term, post apocalyptic state, uh, they're they're not really good for fletching. 
Um, but I've got I've got ducks for that. So for fletching arrows, you can use uh, the ducks. Yes. Um, by the way, the Scoby ducks are amazing ducks. They the Scoby. Very well. The Scoby. Oh, a Scoby. Like uh, the Spanish word for bug is mosco, or a fly is a mosco. Kind of like mosquito, but bigger. Okay, so lastly, you were on Doomsday Preppers, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was an experience. So I feel bad because seeing the show prior to me being on there, I thought these people are nuts. It's <laughs> uh, just, just uh, and you can kind of see how some of the things they're doing are helpful if you really pay attention, but like these guys are nuts. And so. I get a phone call. Says, "Hi, I understand that you sell the preppers. Because that's you know who I started with. The, the name like Hospital Hair. I wasn't going to be selling to anybody at Cita. Um <laughs> But uh, I was at the prepper events, and and that's how they found me. And uh, like, do you have any preps? Said, well, yeah, I make my own food, and and I, I grow food for you know for survival reasons and just for farming reasons." Like, oh, okay, well, what are you preparing for? Like, well, you know, if I lose my my job or whatever. Oh, so like an economic collapse? Um, that's a but Okay, yeah, let's go that way. And at the, at the time, Obama was president, and him and Putin were having a little hissy fit. And uh, one, of the, one of the advisors told uh, Putin's guy, said, we're, we're thinking of putting... Russia under economic sanctions. Russia said, if you do that, then we will drop you as a reserve currency. If that were to happen, China would follow suit, and then all of a sudden, all of the debt that, that China and Russia have against the U.S. would basically, all that money would flood back into the American economy, and we would see the bread lines of World War II, prior to World War II, what Germany uh, experienced. And at the time, that was that was not a huge fear of mine. I mean, I already know that money is artificially lifted, but that's what I was prepping for was an economic collapse, but on a personal level. Right. Um, anyway, uh, so they uh, they asked, well, what are some of your preps? And I said, well, I, I grow my own food. I'm an alternative fuels guy. Basically, 11 pounds of rabbit manure will replace a gallon of gasoline it, through gasification. Yada, yada, yada. And I can hear this lady just losing interest on the phone. I said, and you can also weaponize it, make it into a flamethrower. She's like, wait, you can make a rabbit poop-powered flamethrower? She's like, yes, I can. Oh, my gosh, will you do it for TV? Yes, I will. And just like that, I got one of the crazy a-holes on that show. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, okay. Go ahead. But it was very realistic. Um, but go ahead. What was your What was your question? No, I mean, so, I mean, they basically, you know, they have to make a TV show. So they wanted the most, you know, the most exciting aspect of of whatever you can do, which was the flamethrower. So, how, I mean, how does that come into preparedness? I mean, you want to burn some zombies or burn some people down? What's that? What's a... <laughs> First of all, if you've got the undead approaching your house, the last thing you want to do is light them on fire. That just seems like it's harming them. <laughs> That's just me. That was a uh, test. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, I... So, I wanted to show the BTU value of basically a throwaway biomass. Um, I showed them anaerobic digestion and gasification, but they only showed me weaponizing my demonstration of the BTU value. Um, Uh So they, they wanted me to, and it ended up in the show that, you know, somebody were to come to my house during the apocalypse uh, I'd be able to shoot them with my flamethrower that ran on bunny poop, which <laughs> you you put that in a blog title and everybody's going to click on that, you know? Oh, yeah. So if you, I, if you look at 
Nick Klein rabbit poop powered flamethrower. I'm on like 15 pages of Google because of that. <laughs> I I did uh, I googled that. Um, I actually didn't Google it. I went on YouTube and I actually found your um, video about it. But I didn't. I actually didn't see any clips. I didn't. To be quite honest, I did not search that hard because I saw your video and I was like, well, I wanted to go to your video to see your explanation of it and such. And um, you did not show it in action. I was very disappointed. No, it's okay. Yeah, well, so I tried I tried putting the clip from the show up and it got shut down because oh. there was there's so they they're on YouTube. You have to pay for the episodes. There is somebody that has if you look up uh, Doomsday Prepper be the prep, I think you can find the full episode. And okay. I mean it's it's kind of garbage though. I'm not going to lie. Like every time I watch it, I'm like, "Oh, why did I do that? <laughs> Every time you watch it, you like have it on repeat in your house. <laughs> oh, no, like so, like my little sister, she likes to be like, "Oh, he was on TV. Check this out." And pulls oh. it up. I'm like, oh, yeah. Here oh. we go. Well, that's nice. Your sister's, sister's very proud of you <laughs> for for your bunny poop power flamethrower. No, that's awesome. I th I think the I think the concept is really cool that you can use bunny poop as a fuel. I think that that's fascinating, and I really want to have you on another show to talk about that and bio a whole bunch of other biofuels and stuff because my knowledge is pretty limited. You know, I I know diesel. <laughs> I mean, and that's <laughs> and you know with diesel you can use a lot cool. of other biofuels. I mean, that's pretty much all I know. So yeah, and that's. And that's what I could, we could seriously nerd out for a few hours talking about that stuff. So <laughs> definitely looking forward to having that conversation with you at another time. Yes. I understand. Yes. Um, I do really appreciate your time uh, to talk about uh, self-sufficiency of, of very specifically with food and uh, sharing a little bit. But everyone, please go to the hostelhair.com. That's hostel h-a-r-e.com um and uh i'll have the link in the description of this podcast as well as well as the you know blog posts that i put up and everything so definitely go there it's got a lot of great stuff a lot of great information and all that and um yeah thank you so much for for coming on i really appreciate it hey anytime you want to have me give me a call fantastic yeah, everyone go check them out for, for cereal okay thank you all so much for listening truly appreciate you all and if you ever have any questions feel free to reach out to me and of course if you have any questions about um self-sufficiency of food and any of that head on over to nick and, and conquer tomorrow by preparing today i'll talk to y'all later bye